Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey everyone, welcome back. In the last episode, we covered the planning and landing phase of the Finchhaven campaign. Fair to say, it was a bit of a bugger's muddle of a landing. Despite assurances from the US Navy's Admiral Barbie that he could land the Australians on the correct beach in the dark, in the final event his sailors failed in this most important task, even in the early dawn light. But once ashore, the battalions of the 20th Australian Infantry Brigade soon sorted themselves out and moved towards their stated objective. But the time taken to do so held up the operation for much of the morning and some units weren't located till later in the day. Now it was time to get moving and to find the main Japanese force and seize the objective. Relatively light resistance to the landing would have lulled less seasoned troops into a false sense of security. But not these blokes. By this stage, the collective knowledge of the AIF in fighting the Japanese made sure that they all knew the Japanese did not give up positions easily. Everyone knew things were about to get much tougher. But before they do, don't forget to check out the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com for any associated maps and photos, and check us out on Facebook and Instagram for interesting little bits and pieces. And also drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail if you wish to suggest a topic or just to catch up for a quick chat. And before we go much further, I just want to tell you about another podcast which I've just stumbled across, like literally an hour ago. The podcast in question is the Voice of Veterans podcast. It has been created to give veterans a way of telling their stories of the time serving and also the struggles they may have experienced in transitioning back into civilian life after they have decided to leave the ADF. In the first episode, Nathan is interviewing the author of that classic song, I Was Only 19, John Schumann, a song which was written from the perspective of a Vietnam veteran, but is still relevant today. To go and check out the Voice of Veterans podcast on Spotify, and if you reckon you might know someone who may benefit from listening to other veteran stories, let them know about it. And now, on with today's episode. So, by way of a very quick recap of the state of play where we left Part 1, the 20th Brigade, consisting of the 2nd 13th, 2nd 15th and 2nd 17th, had been intended to land at Scarlet Beach and fan out to seize high ground to the north and south of the beach, establish a beachhead and begin to move inland. But instead, they had been landed about a mile to the south, many being landed in the neighbouring beach of Siki Cove on the wrong side of a rocky headland. Despite this, they'd been able to sort themselves out to a fair degree, and the operation proper could get underway. In small groups, some fighting independently due to the breakdown in communications, they pushed inland and most found their way towards the village of Katika. Major Cribs had with him a company of the 2nd 13th and had found Katika because he'd been advised to follow the creek to capture Zag, thinking it was the Siki Creek. But it wasn't, and it led him towards Katika. Upon his arrival, he saw Captain Pike of the 2nd 17th and his company getting close to the Japanese defenders. Captain DeCamps of the 2nd 13th was holding a track at the crossing point with Siki Creek. Other companies were pushing inland elsewhere or were otherwise unaccounted for. So, are we all caught up? Now, the first objective was to take Katika to allow movement inland towards the main objective. Captain Pike and his men were the first to attack. 
After reaching the main track, he noticed some high ground to the west. So rather than advance down the track in full view of potential Japanese defenders on that high ground, he left the track. About 200 yards later, his leading scout came to a clearing with two dilapidated old huts. Apparently, this was the village of Kataka. Pike ordered Lieutenant Waterhouse to take his platoon around the edge of the clearing, and the rest of the company followed, forming a half-moon around the clearing. Lieutenant McLeod's company, following behind headquarters, saw movement in the clearing and sent some men to investigate. At that moment, the Japanese made their presence known, firing upon Waterhouse's platoon and the section McLeod had sent to investigate the movement. McLeod was able to report to Pike that his section had killed four Japanese but had taken four wounded themselves. Pike ordered McLeod to make a frontal attack on the huts while Waterhouse was to find a way around behind the enemy, believed to be on the high ground directly in front. Pike's third platoon, under Lieutenant Craig, was sent around to the left to pin the enemy down while McLeod advanced. While Waterhouse and Craig were moving into position, heavy fire came from the high ground to the west. Pike had been wise to get off the track. The Japanese attempted to work around the left flank, but Craig's men were able to hold them off. Captain Snell of the 2nd 15th Battalion had also found himself in the general vicinity of Kataka, and upon hearing the radio traffic from Pike, he contacted Pike and advised that his men would take responsibility for the left flank. Meanwhile, Waterhouse was attempting to find a viable path to the high ground, but reported that the ground was thick with undergrowth and vines, and snipers were active. Fortunately, the snipers hadn't inflicted any casualties. He moved further to his right and found a less densely wooded approach, and led his platoon forward up the slope. He managed to get within eight yards of the enemy position before the enemy opened fire and Waterhouse was mortally wounded. The remainder of his men fell back and took cover in a re-entrant, but they were unable to advise Pike of the situation because the walkie-talkie was with Waterhouse. When Sergeant Cunningham, Waterhouse's platoon sergeant, was finally able to re-establish communication with Pike, he advised Pike that Major Cribb was in a re-entrant to his right. The battalion commanders were somewhat confused as to how each of them seemed to have a company involved in this attack on a small village, nor did they have any real idea of how the fight was going. Pike hadn't been particularly forthcoming with the information. His first message to Lieutenant Colonel Simpson simply said, Struck opposition at 633-682. Extent unknown. Dealing with it. At 10.53am, Lieutenant Colonel Colvin, of the 2nd 13th, contacted Simpson to discuss the three companies carrying out the fighting. In his opinion, they seemed to be in trouble. At 11am, Pike gave a more detailed account of the situation. I am in Kataka village, on east of Kataka and slightly north. Crib, 2nd 13th Battalion, west of Kataka. Snell, 2nd 15th, north and east of the village. Waterhouse's platoon, west of village. Crib took over and doing a show. End quote. When they'd first met up, Cribb had ordered Pike to move his forward sections back so he could bombard the enemy positions with grenades and two-inch mortars. He had decided to attack the enemy positions and ordered Lieutenant Birmingham's platoon to give supporting fire, Lieutenant McDougall to watch the rear, and for Lieutenant Pope's platoon to carry out the attack. When everyone was in position, 15 mortars were lobbed onto the Japanese. At 10.55, Pope and his men went in, pushing their way through the thick undergrowth and kunai grass. Heavy fire came from the Japanese, and just as heavy fire was directed right back at them. But they were in defensive positions, whereas Pope and his men were in the open. Although they managed to push to within grenade range, it was impossible to advance further. Pope, who had been wounded but remained in command, ordered his men to go to ground and hold on. He'd lost two men killed and ten wounded. As the attack was progressing, Private Dutton managed to remove three of the wounded men, carrying each of them out on his back. The others were stuck where they were. 
Cribs ordered Pope to withdraw, but getting the casualties out with such heavy fire coming from the Japanese position would be near impossible. Cribs told Pope that a mortar barrage would be provided, so long as Pope could give accurate grid references. As the mortars rained down, the platoon moved back, bringing their wounded with them. For some reason, the Japanese fire had ceased, so the men were able to pull back without further casualties. All up, during this attack, Cribs' company had suffered 28 casualties, eight of them dead. While the fighting at Kataka was intensifying, a much more dangerous development had been discovered down on the beaches. Despite Admiral Barby reporting at lay that the unloading of supplies was virtually complete and congratulating his sailors, most of the 9mm ammunition had not been unloaded. This ammunition was required for the brigade's main close-quarter weapon, the Owen gun. Winday had ordered his troops to conserve their Owen gun ammunition, but fortunately that message hadn't reached the troops attacking Kataka. Having known that their own ammunition was in short supply, they may have decided to not attack at all, and the Japanese may have had more time to develop their defensive position. By midday, Brigadier Window had organised for an airdrop of 9mm ammunition, which would be delivered after dark. He decided that no further advances were to be made until the beachhead was established and secure. Elsewhere, other than at Kataka, the companies were ordered to mop up enemy stragglers and snipers within their current areas. At Kataka, the 2nd 15th Battalion, which had concentrated in the area as Brigade Reserve, were ordered to capture the village as soon as possible. Snell and Christie led their companies forward at 3.15pm after a brief mortar bombardment. To their surprise, the strong enemy position had been abandoned. Despite their failure to seize the positions, the attacks by Pike and Cribs had convinced the Japanese that they wouldn't be able to withstand another attack, and so they had taken the opportunity to pull out. That was the last of the serious fighting that first day of the campaign. The scattered battalions consolidated themselves throughout the evening and into the night. The 2nd 17th had a company on North Hill under Captain Sheldon, a position which dominated Scarlet Beach. They also had Pike on the high ground south of the Song River, and the rest of the battalion were strung out between these two positions. 2nd 13th in the southern sector had pushed south after Kataka had fallen and had control of the Hellbatch area, and a Papuan infantry platoon had walked unopposed into Bonga on the northern flank. So all in all, the landing beach was secured. The three battalions were ashore and in reasonably good order. Considering the day started with chaos and disorganisation, it was a pretty good outcome. And, credit where it was due, the RAAF pilots bringing in the 9mm ammunition did an amazing job. The drop zone was a cleared patch of kunai grass and the only illumination which could be provided was from the headquarters staff shining their torches in the area. Of the 115,000 rounds dropped, 112 of them were recovered. Not a bad effort dropping in the dark with just a handheld torches to guide them. The US Navy also did some good work late in the afternoon. Heading back to Ley after disgorging the men and material on the beaches, they identified Japanese aircraft heading towards the landing beaches from Rabaul. The Japanese then saw the retiring convoy and decided they were a nice juicy target. But timing was not with the pilots on this occasion. The ship-based aircraft, which had provided the covering umbrella for the landing, were due to be relieved and so were heading back to the ships. At the same time, relieving aircraft were prepared and ready to roll, and so the Japanese flew directly into five American fighter squadrons. The Japanese lost 10 bombers and 29 fighters to the American pilots, while a further nine torpedo boats were destroyed by the ship's anti-aircraft fire. Sometimes the luck just isn't with you. Prisoners and documents captured on that first day show that the Japanese had 300 to 400 troops around Scarlet Beach and Kataka. They had killed 20 Australians and wounded 65 with 9 missing. But could have been worse. If you remember from the previous episode, 
Shortly after landing at Scarlet Beach, a diversionary landing was to take place far to the south to make the Japanese think that the main attack was coming from Ley, the most obvious place for the Allies to launch an assault on Finshaven. The 80th Regiment of the Japanese Army sent three companies of troops and two 75mm field guns to meet this threat. The night of the 22nd, 23rd of September was relatively quiet. Apart from a lone Japanese soldier walking into the position of a 2nd 13th platoon, there was hardly a shot fired. Windale issued his orders for the following day, which would be an advance to the south in the direction of Finshaven. The 2nd 15th would lead the way to the Bumai River, and the 2nd 13th would assemble at the Hellsbach Plantation on 30 minutes' notice to move. Windale was also aware that he needed to take care of potential threats from his northern and western flank. General Wooten had told Windale that he should get at least one company onto Saddleburg as soon as possible after the landing, just to secure that west flank. Each of them had thought that putting troops on Saddleburg would be a routine matter. They had underestimated the inaccessible terrain surrounding that village. Adding to their future problems, the Japanese, who had been defending Kataka, fell back towards Saddleburg after they had withdrawn from the village. Saddleburg would become another of those pivotal battles of the war, but I'll cover that in a subsequent episode. It's just important to know that at this stage, Saddleburg was a consideration which Window had to take into account while conducting the advance towards Finchhaven. The southward advance commenced at 8am with Major Newcomb's company leading the 2nd 15th. Three hours later, after exactly zero contact with the Japanese, the leading platoon approached the Bumai River. It was easily fordable and at 12.40 in the afternoon, the lead scout approached the village of Kamloa and saw two Japanese troops sitting under a tree. He fired and missed and the Japanese fired their weapons into the air as a signal and then scarpered. Just after one o'clock, the leading section under Corporal Tart advanced to the river bank to provide covering fire for the main crossing. Tart was walking along the bank, scouting the most favourable positions to cross, when he was shot and killed. Following that shot, a whole fusillade erupted from the other side of the river. Corporal Cousins and his section provided cover fire while Tart's section extricated itself. Cousins himself was wounded while bringing in other wounded. At first glance, you would think that this posed a problem. How to cross the heavily defended river? Well, fortunately, neither Colonel Grace nor Brigadier Window were lacking smarts. Before the 2nd 15th had even started off that morning, they had devised an alternate plan should they meet heavy resistance along the coastal track. Grace now contacted Window and received authorisation to enact this alternate plan. Leaving two companies at the river to keep the Japanese occupied, Major Southers led Christie and Snell's companies, along with some pioneers, stretcher bearers and mortarmen up into the hills. They left the battalion at 4pm, hacked their way through heavy undergrowth and made their way to the foothills of the Krutberg Range. The going was tough to say the least. There was no track or water on the way and the creeper vines and jungle on the flat ground gave way to steep slopes. The slopes were so steep that the heavy supplies, such as machine guns, mortars etc, would need to be handed from one man to another to get them up the slope. Even the stretcher bearers decided to leave all but two of their stretchers behind which is probably justified. If they struggled to get unladen stretchers up the slope, then getting them back down with a wounded soldier on them would have been impossible. The distance travelled was only 800 yards, as the crow flies, but it took an hour and a half to reach the top of the ridge. After a short break to catch their breath, and to ponder if maybe it wouldn't have been easier just to cross the bloody creek, the men pushed on south for another hour until they reached the forward slopes of the spur where they would spend the night. During that day, the southern push continued and saw their first sign of Japanese occupation by about 8am. 
but the enemy had long since departed the scene, and natives reported that the Japanese had spent the previous night further along the coast. The first contact with live Japanese came shortly after 1.30, when Captain Martin's company was engaged by a small outpost who withdrew after a short fight. The Australians reached deep cutting to the east of Bua by that evening, and spent a rather uneventful night except for the occasional rifle shot. On the morning of the 23rd, the 2nd 13th was ordered to follow the path cut by the 2nd 15th into the hills and cross the river at a place secured by the 2nd 15th. On receiving advice that the 2nd 13th were on their way, the 2nd 15th lads moved down to the river. The going was just as tough, and by the time the 2nd 13th were taking their turn to catch their breath and curse the climb, the 2nd 15th was still 350 yards away from the river. But by 10am, the leading sections finally reached the river at what appeared, at first glance, to be a suitable crossing point. The Japanese had obviously spent some time on this side of the creek, but had departed long ago. But then, upon looking on the other side of the river, the well-maintained barbed wire gave the men cause to reconsider. Major Southers decided that crossing at that point would be a less than intelligent idea, and so scouts were sent out and found a more suitable alternative upstream about 150 yards. But it wasn't exactly a safe crossing point either. A platoon under the command of Captain Christie and Lieutenant Harpham were sent to survey the crossing and Christie was shot by a sniper from the opposite bank. Harpham went to see if Christie was dead, which he was, but he was then also hit and killed by a sniper. But still, this was a better option to make the crossing and so Southers ordered Snell to cross and establish a beachhead on the opposite bank. Artillery was aimed at the enemy positions and machine gunners got into position to support the crossing. Three of Snell's men were hit while warming up for the attempt, but at 1.15 they were ready, and with the water up to their waists they pushed across, with only one man being killed during the crossing. Snell himself had somewhat of a close call. After crossing the river, the men pushed up a steep slope and set up position there. With five seconds to himself, Snell did a quick assessment of his personage and found a bullet hole through the seat of his pants. With the newly air-conditioned Snell on the south bank, and Captain Stewart now in command of Christie's company on the north bank, the crossing was secure, and the 2nd 13th were ordered to make their crossing. Despite some harassing fire from positions further downstream, the 2nd 13th were across and linked up with Snell shortly before last light. Throughout the 22nd and 23rd, there had been no indication of enemy activity around Scarlet Beach, where Window had four companies of the 2nd 17th guarding the supply dump. He decided that although there was still a risk, it could be handled by two companies, and those other two companies would be much better utilised as a reserve for the fight to take Finchhaven. It was a risk, but a justifiable one given his objectives. Lieutenant Colonel Colvin also suggested that as the track hacked out by the 2nd 15th was a poor route to take for resupply and removal of wounded, maybe a jeep track should be put through to the crossing point. The pioneers were put to work with the men from the 2nd 17th and the reserves from the 2nd 15th doing the heavy carrying. The Japanese infantry may not have been a threat to the Scarlet Beach position, but their air force could still deliver a blow. At 12.30pm, Japanese planes struck the gun positions within the beachhead, and although none of the guns were damaged, they inflicted heavy losses on the gunners. Captain Nelligan and a gunner were killed. In addition, the 2nd 3rd Field Company lost 14 killed and 19 wounded. The liaison unit of the US Air Force lost all of its equipment and its commander was also killed. It was a devastating strike. For the main force, the 24th was a day of consolidation and amassing of food and ammunition for the push towards Finchhaven. The 2nd 13th passed through the 2nd 15th and established itself overlooking the main enemy position. The jeep track was pushed through, allowing gathering of supplies at the Bumai River beachhead. 
The second 15 companies, who were still guarding the river to the south, launched a mock attack, just to keep the Japanese guessing. The 22nd Battalion, pushing along the coast from the south, came across a deserted Japanese camp with large amounts of equipment and ammunition lying abandoned. Moving forward, they came across another abandoned ammunition dump of 75mm artillery ammunition. By 1.40, they had reached their objective of Mongai and settled in. Keep in mind that this thrust of the 22nd Battalion was a diversion designed to distract Japanese attention from the main attack coming from the north. The stores and ammunition left behind by the retreating Japanese suggest that that feint may have worked. This was only reinforced when that night the Japanese opened up on them with all they had. Rifles, machine guns, submachine guns, mortars and 75mm rounds were unleashed on the Australians for half an hour. It was as though the enemy had decided that, rather than leave perfectly good ammunition behind, they may as well send it all downrange. The total cost to the Australians was one killed and one wounded, although the intensity probably left quite a few nerves pretty well strained. Back up north on the 24th, there was a problem brewing, literally. They were having problems brewing. It may sound insignificant, but due to the rush in organising the operation, there was a shortage of important things such as tobacco, cigarettes, chocolate and canned heat. Canned heat is a jellied alcohol in a tin, which burns without producing a flame which an enemy might see. It was the only way the men on the pointy end could have a hot cup of tea. As I say, it may sound insignificant, but when all other comforts have been stripped away, a cup of tea and a smoke would have been one of the few things a bloke could look forward to. The 25th was much like the 24th, with consolidation of the river crossing and gathering of supplies. Window directed that no further move to the south was to be conducted until two days' worth of rations for the 2nd 13th, 2nd 15th and 2nd 17th elements had been accumulated at the Boomai beachhead. It was also on the 25th that Window got the first unsettling feeling that maybe his flank wasn't as secure as he had thought. The company from the 2nd 17th, which had been sent to occupy Saddleburg, along with the Papuan infantry, moved along the Saddleburg Road. They reached Jivenvang, which the Papuans had mistaken for Saddleburg. The move had been uneventful, and so, having confirmed that they had not, in fact, reached Saddleburg, Major Main led his company forward along the track after leaving one platoon at Zag to secure their rear. About 800 yards down the road, they met a strong Japanese position astride the track. One platoon tried to outflank the position, but were unsuccessful, and in fact it was the Japanese who executed a successful flank attack, cutting the Australian telephone line in two places. Main ordered mortars and grenades to drop on the Japanese position, but they had little effect. Main contacted Windayer and advised that he would need at least a company just to shift this one Japanese position, let alone take the main Saddleberg position. Windayer didn't have sufficient manpower to take Saddleberg and carry out his main objective of taking Finchhaven. He ordered Main not to advance further, and when Main suggested that a position could be developed at Jivenvang, Windayer agreed and Main pulled back. In contrast to the previous couple of days, the 26th of September was to be a day of heavy fighting across Windows front. He wanted to enlarge his bridgehead and get the entirety of the 2nd 13th onto the Krutberg range. To do this, he ordered the 2nd 15th to capture high ground to the southeast of the crossing point, while the 2nd 13th pushed to the southwest. Colonel Grace arranged for a 10-minute bombardment by artillery and 3-inch mortars to support his 2nd 15th attack. Two companies, under Snell and Stewart, would make the attack. The first 150 yards were probably the least organised advance ever undertaken in war. The ground fell sharply, and with the troops tripping over vines and crashing through bamboo, they basically fell to the bottom of the valley. Then, after advancing a further 450 yards, 
they encountered the other side of the valley and had to pull themselves up an equally precipitous slope of about 200 yards. But when they reached the top, they were in sufficient order to advance the final 150 yards. Oh, and did I mention that throughout the climb, they were subjected to a flurry of grenades being tossed down to them by the elite Japanese marines. Fortunately, they inflicted little damage. In fact, Corporal Norris had a grenade explode only a foot away. It blew him back down the hill, but he was able to pick himself up and return to the front of his section and lead the way. The Australians, mostly from Queensland, forced the Japanese to keep their heads down by firing up blindly, but it proved effective. The Marines were in a strong defensive position and should have been able to hold on all day. But when the somewhat pissed off Australians crested the summit and charged forwards with bayonets flashing, the Marines' will crumbled. Most of them panicked and turned to run away with much haste. On the right flank, Snell sent Sergeant Fink around the Kunai patch to come in behind the enemy. Fink lost ten men making this manoeuvre, as they had drawn fire from the defenders. This switch in fire allowed the remaining Australians to rush forward. Although he was wounded himself, Fink and his remaining men cut down the Japanese defenders as they tried to make their escape, killing 30. On the left flank, Stewart's company was also successful. Lieutenant Starmer's and Lieutenant Rogers' platoons entered the Kunai patch and met two machine guns. Maintaining their momentum, the Australians overwhelmed the machine gun crews and the remaining 40 to 50 Japanese troops ran back towards their observation post. In a departure from normal jungle tactics, Stewart's three platoons, joined by a platoon from Snell's company, advanced in an extended line, as they would have done in the deserts of North Africa. It proved effective, and by the time the advance halted, they had captured three 13mm machine guns, seven light machine guns, and a few mortars. The Japanese had suffered an estimated 100 casualties, while the 2nd 15th lost two killed, one died of wounds, and seven wounded. Writing about this attack, Windayer stated, the position was a strong one, held by about 100 to 150 Japanese marines. They broke and fled as our assault came upon them. The result of the operations was that the whole of the enemy defences in Salonkua Plantation and Kakagog were dominated by our forces. End quote. On the 2nd 13th front, Major Hanley moved off five minutes after Snell and Stewart had begun their attack. His objective was to cut the Tiramoro track and he planned on sending two platoons forward, with Lieutenant Thompson on the right side of the track, and Lieutenant Webb to advance along the track. It soon became apparent that Thompson's men were unable to move along the slope, as they were sometimes required to move on hands and knees through the thick bamboo. Hardly a strong position to fight from, if and when the need came. They clambered up to the top of the slope to advance in single file. Progress was slow, and when the leading men broke through the bamboo at the foot of a steep rise, they came under heavy fire from the top. The men took what cover they could, but any further advance was halted. Hanley decided to attack from the left flank with Lieutenant Mayer's platoon, but as they were forming up, they were subjected to light machine gun fire from a position on the next spur. They would be unable to move forward as well. At 5.15pm, Lieutenant Colonel Colvin ordered Handley to withdraw his company 150 yards to settle in for the night, and to make another attempt in the morning. Nine Australians had been lost on this flank. While all this was going on, Bigger problems were afoot for Windayer. His gamble that his northern and western flanks were unlikely to be threatened was proving to be incorrect. The Japanese had begun to make attacks along the Saddlebird Road towards Scarlet Beach. This created a few headaches as he didn't have sufficient troops to deal with this threat as well as prosecuting his attack on Finchhaven. He had the two companies of the 2nd 17th behind Kamloa, which were his reserve, and the other two companies were guarding the approaches to Scarlet Beach at Katika. 
Major Pike sent out a small patrol to have a look as far as Garabao. After about 2,500 yards, they met strong fire and withdrew back towards Kataka. At about midday, around 30 Japanese attacked Lieutenant McLeod's positions west of the village. Two Japanese were killed, including an officer, who held a map which looked like an operation order. Pike was ordered to send a strong patrol to attack the enemy positions, or at least call down artillery fire onto them. After advancing about 2,000 yards, the platoon was forced to ground, and so called in the artillery. But in the confined conditions, they were unable to tell if the shell fire had any real effect. But there was nothing else for it but to try to recommence the movement forward. Sergeant Brightwell was wounded leading the first section. With machine gun fire slashing through the vegetation around him, Private Moore rushed forward to bring Brightwell back. As he was being carried, Brightwell was wounded again, and both men were knocked to the ground. Moore picked Brightwell up again, but the sergeant was hit again, this time fatally. Moore finally got Brightwell out and then organised for the withdrawal of the section. The platoon then fell back to Kataga. Through gathering documents from fallen Japanese soldiers, it became increasingly clear that when the landing had begun, the Japanese were in the process of reinforcing the area. They had been thrown off balance by the invasion, but they were now beginning to get themselves together. Window became convinced on the 26th that there were at least three enemy battalions threatening his flank from Saddleburg. Later in the day, the map taken from the fallen officer by Lieutenant MacLeod turned out to be an order from Lieutenant Colonel Takagi to launch an attack down the Kataka and Saddleburg tracks to cut off the Australians at Hellsback and to annihilate them. Fortunately, the two companies of the 2nd 17th had broken up that attack. But those attacks had only been by small patrols. The main body was clearly still out there. Wendaya needed more troops. On the 27th, he signalled Wooten for an additional battalion to guard the beachhead and to enable him to focus on capturing Finchhaven. On the morning of the landing on Scarlet Beach, the 22nd of September, General Blamey had left Port Moresby to return to his headquarters in Brisbane. Prior to his departure, he told General Herring, commander of I Corps, to reinforce Finchhaven with an additional brigade to assist the 20th Brigade. Herring got on to General Wooten, commander of the 9th Division, with orders to be prepared to move with Division Headquarters and the 24th Brigade. What followed can only be described as a shit fight. You see, General MacArthur, all the way back in Brisbane, once again assumed that the forces facing the Australians were not particularly significant. So his headquarters had issued an order in regards to the operations of Finchhaven, stating that the operations were, quote, to be so conducted as to avoid commitment of amphibious means beyond those allotted, end quote. Now the allotted amphibious means consisted of the landing craft that had been used on the day of the landings and those assigned for resupply. Those crafts that had landed troops had done their bit and were, therefore, no longer allotted. Can you see the problem here? Herring had received orders from Blamey to send a brigade, but the US Navy, in particular Admiral Barbie, had received orders that no further naval resources were to be used. But to complicate matters, Barbie had not received the full orders. Annex 3 basically stated that the Admiral was bound to move troops as directed by Blamey but it was Herring who had told him that his craft were required to transport another brigade. Barbie wanted confirmation from Blamey. Blamey was on his way to Brisbane, uncontactable. It literally took days to sort the mess out. And while all that was being sorted, the Japanese presence around Finchhaven and Saddleburg was increasing, and they were getting somewhat belligerent. The 20th Brigade needed reinforcements, and the 24th Brigade was sitting around at Ley, twiddling its thumbs while admirals and generals argued over the finer points of military orders. 
Sometimes you just want to go back in time and smash some senior officer heads together, don't you? On the 26th, Herring sent a secret signal to Blamey with a copy to MacArthur, stating, After six days of hard fighting, 20th Infantry Brigade is on a front of nine miles with a depth of six miles. Although successfully launched, the operation is far from complete and enemy is resisting in numerous bunker strongholds. Frequent enemy air attacks have made the operation more difficult besides causing casualties. To carry out the mission of capturing Finchhaven and exploiting to CO at least 60 miles along the coast, Headquarters 9th Division and the 2nd Infantry Brigade are required. This was foreseen and ordered by you, and both commanders of the New Guinea Force and I Australian Corps consider it essential this be done earliest possible. The question of reinforcements and resupply is now becoming acute, and early action to move above forces is urgently required. End quote. The request was met with the response that General Headquarters, that is MacArthur, did not approve reinforcement of a brigade, but it did authorise Barbie to transport one battalion. So, to put that into perspective for the non-military types, a brigade had been requested, so that's about two and a half to 5,000 troops. MacArthur, after being advised of the situation, only authorised a battalion. That's about 600 to 1,000, so basically a fifth of what was requested. It was finally decided that this battalion would sail from Ley on the night of the 28th to 29th of September. Fortunately, the troops on the pointy end, apart from Window and his staff, had no idea that all that was going on. They had more important things to worry about. On 27th of September, the Japanese were still fighting stubbornly at the Bumai River and Saddleberg Road. The phone lines to Jivenvang and Zag had been cut. Soon after dusk, a platoon of Japanese charged the position at Jivenvang screaming their allegiance to General Tojo. Six of the attackers were killed and the remainder driven off. But it did signal that far from being forced onto the defensive, the Japanese were building for an attack designed to cut off the Australians from their means of supply and retreat. And that's where we're going to leave it for this episode. The Battle of Finchhaven is far from over and its outcome far from confirmed. With Japanese forces massing around Saddleberg, and a strong defensive force still holding out at Kakagog and other positions north of Finchhaven, the situation for Window is nearing desperation. He needs more troops, but he doesn't have the time to sit back and wait for the senior officers to argue the finer points of reinforcement. The longer he waits, the more time the Japanese have to prepare an offensive at Saddleberg. I wouldn't want to be in his position. And how does he handle it all? Well, we'll cover that in the next episode. I'll catch you then.